Hey there, welcome to Sales Unbound, brought to you by Sales Group. I'm your host, Anna Dana, and this is the show where we chat with inspiring founders and experts to get an inside scoop on how they made their business success. And today with me is Jonathan Bell, co-founder and CEO at License One, the hub for SMEs to detect their software subscriptions, prevent wasted spend, and manage employee excesses. They have a tiny team of four, they're based in France, and in three years since their launch, they have already helped hundreds of companies completely change the way they manage their uh, subscriptions. So it's super excited to have you here and learn about everything you do. Thanks. Great to be here, Anna. Awesome. Okay. Well, and first of all, you know, I always do uh, the research before I meet with my guests and I thought, okay, well, you're based in France, so you're going to have a French accent. And then I found your <laughs> only podcast that you did and the host starts saying, well, uh, Jonathan is from Scotland. And I'm like, oh God, I'm screwed. <laughs> <'Cause> <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. If, if, if I was on this podcast, maybe five or six years ago, you might have been, uh, but I kind of had to learn to, to lose my accent over, over the past little while. Uh, the, the French okay. already and their English isn't so good, but no, I, um, <laughs> I arrived in, I arrived in France, something like, um, it must have been six, seven years ago. I'd done a study abroad with Erasmus uh, and then I I went a little bit everywhere across Europe and then I ended up settling down on a coastal town called La Rochelle and that's where License One was founded. Okay. No, it's just like, it's, it was a painful experience for me. Uh, in my university, I had an accounting teacher from Scotland and, it, you know, I just uh, have to say, you know, I, uh, I failed accounting. So <laughs> well, if you want me to go back to my old accent, I can do it, but I don't think that's going to be good for the people listening. All <laughs> <laughs> right. But anyway, um, yeah, jokes aside, it's great to have you here and let's maybe, uh, get into your background a little bit. How did you end up, um, with license one and doing what you're doing? Um, so for all my career, I sort of worked in SaaS. It wasn't really by choice. I just fell into it by luck. Uh, when I was saying in my study abroad, I was in Lyon and, um, one of my professors offered me an internship at this small startup. In, Wait a uh, second. What university is it? Cause it sounds all too familiar. Cause I was in Erasmus too. <laughs> okay. Uh, university Lyon, Claude Bernard, Lyon 1. No. No, a different one, but your French is perfect. <laughs> so, so yeah, I was, uh, I was in university there uh, and I must have done something right because at the end of my, uh, one of my modules, my professor offered me an internship at a company called Web Mechanic. Uh, those, these guys were based in Annecy, which is a lovely place in the mountains and uh, just a, like 30 minutes drive outside of Lyon. So of course I said, yes, sounds great. Give me a summer there for free. I love that. Uh, eventually those guys ended up recruiting me and uh, I went into the UK market with them. Uh, they were doing marketing automation at the time that HubSpot were just coming on the European scene. So we were directly competing with HubSpot. So <laughs> we, I'll let, I don't think I need to tell you who won that battle right. in the end. <laughs> but um, then with that same company, I moved to Berlin because Germany was um, a bigger market for us and they were more susceptible to buy European made solutions. It was there that I was contacted by a company called Celsi, who are the French leader of CRM and invoicing solutions. They do an all-in-one platform, primarily targeting SMEs. 
Um, and then I was there, I want, worked in marketing initially, and then I moved up to manage the whole international development of the, the company after they raised Series A. And it was one afternoon, um, I think it was the middle of the year, the, the finance director, who was my direct boss, came up to me and asked, you know, okay, we're doing you know, the, the, the mid-year budget, we're just trying to figure out what's being spent, what software subscriptions have you got? Um, <laughs> I can remember the ones I put A in place, lot. so Calendly, Loom, whatever. Yeah, like I felt I felt sort of like the whole world coming in because I'm a young guy trying to move his way up the career, really motivated, whatever. Uh, and I was like, you know what? Can I come back to you in a week? Uh, he's like, yeah, sure, but it's a bit weird. Okay. So I go speak to the accountant and we start going through line by line of everything that they've assigned to my budget. And I found a join me subscription that I never took. It was the old manager. Uh, but suddenly we just forgot to delete and remove that subscription once they left. Uh, we found uh, subscriptions where nobody had access. We had subscriptions with seats everywhere. And I was like, okay, that's a problem. I've always had this sort of thing in my head that I wanted to try at least once to start a company. Um, and I think it was a big enough problem and a big enough wake up call as a young impressionable manager. It gave me enough motivation um, and stupidity <laughs> to, to start license one. And it was also at Celsius then that I met my two co-founders, uh, Remy and Emilian, who were on the development team at that time. Um, and those were the two guys that really, oh, that really took me under their wing as well. You know, like you said, the Scottish accent isn't easy. The Scottish culture isn't always compatible with France. Um, but those two guys, they seem to tolerate it and seem to, to be as crazy enough as I was to start a company and, and go through all that sort of process. So that's how we ended up uh, at this stage. Cool. Okay. So you didn't understand each other at first, but then. <laughs> yeah, I had to learn some French. <laughs> they didn't really understand what you wanted, but they they joined and just rolled with it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> cool. All right. Great story. And I remember um, when, when I was just starting uh, working in marketing, we um, one day I remember sitting uh, at the table and just thinking, how awesome would it be to just have this one little tool that would help us, uh, especially with onboarding, you know, because yeah. new people come and they don't know what we use and how we use it, you know, if there is a tool available or not. Or like you said, one person left and then they never told you that there was a subscription that they were using, you know, and I'm not using it anymore. So we just kind of roll with it and continue paying for it. Yeah, but yeah, there you go. Yeah. And uh, just okay, to add on, so... over, we even see that. Sorry, I cut you up, but we even see that sure. across teams gets even worse. So we can see like development teams that love managing their projects in one tool, the marketing team in another tool, uh, and the sales team in another tool. But functionally, they're pretty much all the same. They're just trying to verticalize their marketing. But if they regrouped all those subscriptions into one, they probably get bulk discounts by putting them everywhere. So it's not even just in one team. You go across the whole other teams and you realize actually there's silos in every single company. It's a, it's a, it's a headache. So I hope I picked a good business to start it in at least. <laughs> fingers, <laughs> cro fingers crossed. <laughs> yes, true. Okay. So um, how did you start the company, right? Well, you snatched two developers. <laughs> then yeah. What did you do first? <laughs> Yeah, so that's, that's not really the whole story in detail. So what I'd done was uh, when I was stayed at still, I was still at Celsius uh, and everything was done manually at that time. So 
I asked them for their accounting exports and I took an Excel sheet and I started going through it bit by bit and trying to analyze, okay, how can I detect software? How can I re detect recurring subscriptions? Uh, and before I even spoke to Emilian and um, Remy, my two co-founders, I said, okay, like if this problem exists for Celsius, it might just be that they have a problem, but it doesn't mean that that problem exists elsewhere. True. So I started yeah. contacting um, a few other companies that existed from my old network from Web Mechanic, but also my new one with Celsius and saying, hey, like, I will do a software audit for you. Give, I will sign your NDA, give me uh, a list of your accounting exports and I'll go through them all and then I'll save you money and you can pay me a percentage of whatever I save you, which, you know, there's actually companies now that compete with us that are built on that model, so, <laughs> which, is, which is quite funny. Um, and it turned out that it wasn't just Celsius that the problem was existing and the problem was existing in marketing agencies of 40 people that was existing in a smaller air. Uh, I saw an SME, which was like a sort of digital website agency, 10 people inside of it, because their problem was they were having freelancers coming in and out of the company, being attached to licenses, being removed, whatever. And when I started realizing that that problem existed, and it existed elsewhere. And the only criteria was that it was a digitalized industry that that company existed in. That's when I started to think, okay, how can we build this MVP? Uh, and to do that, I first solicited a million. I said, okay, like, hey, like, look, this is what I do. You're, you're the genius that knows how to put code into something usable and a product that people love. Help me figure this out. Uh, Amelian worked up within the space of, uh, I don't want to over or underestimate his abilities, but I think something that was presentable to clients was something about two, three months work. Uh, and it failed completely. Horrible. Like <laughs> That's got nothing to do with Amelian or me. It's just like... You really it, it, we... didn't overestimate his abilities here. <laughs> he's, he's an amazing product manager. He's an amazing engineer. But the, the MVP, it was more a case of where... We were trying to replicate the process that I was doing rather than focusing on the problem and the perception of the problem that our users were having, which were two slightly different things. So I was go we were optimizing the process of detecting software and then just highlighting all of the, the software where perhaps you've got inactive users, where really all our users wanted to do was save money. It was a level above that problem. We were just delivering the functionality, but we weren't delivering the solution to get there. Uh, and we, st we we still have a lot of work to get there. We're getting there. There's a lot of people that do save money with us and we were already building that case. But that MVP stage was a big hit in the face. Uh, you consume podcast content, you read articles, you, you go to conferences and you're like, ah, oh, yeah, build a scrappy MVP. People are going to pay for it. And then you're going to explode like Slack. Nah, it was a hit in the face. Uh, nobody loved our MVP. Nobody loved our software for the per first year it was even in production. There was always something wrong. Um, but then there was this sort of critical mass that critical mass is probably the wrong word, but the snowball effect that happened that we stopped turning into a feature factory and we started turning into a, uh, company that really wanted to figure out the problem in depth. We reorganized all of our processes internally, where instead of having a roadmap and a backlog, we had three, uh, separate sections. We have one, which is the roadmap. So what we're working on. Two solutions, which are like the technical solutions we could have to things and then problems and problems are the high level statements. So problems would be like, um, I can't detect who is inactive on a software license or when somebody leaves, I can't make them remove. Uh, I can't remove them from all my licenses. Typically, people would call them user stories. 
But semantically, we wanted to reposition it inside of the head of everybody in license one, saying, that in fact, it's really easy to build SaaS in a way. <laughs> you just need to refocus the problem on what are the problems? What are the solutions? How do we get them to the customer? And then very recently, we've also added a, th a fourth step, which we call purgatory. And that's where we everything that is put into production is then reevaluated over the next coming three to six months to make sure that either that problem has been solved by what we put in as a solution, or if not, it's put back into the problem section and we need to fix that problem. So we've became we we've sort of changed uh, philosophically from a development process to a problem solving process even to the stage now that we don't call the development team the development team they're the problem solving team like that's what they do their their role is solving problems for users okay very interesting uh i i'm detecting like every development team right uh has their own little tweaks to to the, their processes and um that's how like they, they get their like internal names right so for example yeah. when we're talking um with dhh right from uh, 37 signals they're like oh no just d do whatever but don't call us engineers then you know <laughs> your yeah. uh your problem solvers um so it's 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 really funny but you know you you do you do uh the job so um first of all what was the defining moment when you realize that you're not really doing um, things right? And uh, did it come from customers? Or did you just realize that, you know, since it's been a year, you know, and yeah. we're not ma making money, and people are not very satisfied, then it's time to to change something? Yeah. Um, what was the moment? That's a good question. I think the moment wasn't really a sort of big bang moment where it hit it at once. It was more of like a car crash in slow motion. If I was to give like some sort of nihilistic metaphor, um, it was more a case of like, we kept on pushing hard and putting things into production hard. And we were running a playbook of getting users in by tempting them with this new features. People were coming in and then their seven day retention was dropping off. And I think it was just a moment of um, every every six months, we take a, what we call a breather, where we have one week where nobody does operational work. Everybody in the team is working on strategy. We're reflecting on what we've done the past six months, uh, where the company's going, if it, all of our assumptions and hypotheses were correct. And I think that was probably more or less that period of that week where we started clicking on and saying like, hey, maybe this approach of, you know, just putting everything in production without, there was a strategy, but without problem solving. And um, I think that was the point where we realized, okay, we need to sort of change philosophically this whole model of how we approach things. Um, it came from a whole m bunch of sources, that date of a whole source of data points that uh, came from, we, d we don't do MPS, but uh, customers weren't the great source uh, because customers are always going to say that they love your product that, or they're always going to say, yeah, I want that feature. And then you sure. deliver that feature yeah. and then they don't use it. What was where we were getting that data was more from amplitude for tracking our, our in-app analytics. And we were seeing, OK, how often are people logging in? We're getting that obviously from MRR reporting. We use chart mogul. So we saw that it wasn't going up despite us delivering everything that people told us they wanted. Um, that was that was it was a case of a whole amalgamation of multiple different feedback points telling us that 
either this isn't a viable business and the problem doesn't exist, but we'd already kind of validated the problem has existed uh, or that we were just getting really, we weren't getting really good at solving it. And so we decided on the second one because as sometimes as entrepreneurs do, you don't accept no as an answer <laughs> and you kind of continue for too long. Right. Uh, well, that's what we, we done, but it wasn't too long. In the end, we ended up cracking, cracking the problem solving. Cool. Okay. I feel like, you know, uh, when you talk to, to customers, especially existing customers uh, that uh, say, you know, we want this feature and we want this feature, and then you, you send them like a, like a spreadsheet with all the features that they requested or somebody else requested, then, you know, every feature should have a price to it. And then whatever they ping as yes, build it, uh, it should add to their existing pricing right away even if it's not there and then you see you know if they're ready to pay for it right there um that moment i guess it it would be so much easier than i think for for the founders because if you cannot put the money um right away into what you want in the mm -hmm. product i think you don't need it yeah i mean i i agree to a certain extent um, there, there's some areas where I wouldn't agree. I'm going to be annoying, but <laughs> I, I wish I could agree with sure. everything. Um, That's why we're here. <laughs> there was, there's one example that really annoys me a lot in, uh, in SaaS pricing, um, is normally SaaS sector really focuses a lot on repricing pricing strategy. What, what's he called? Patrick Campbell, who does a lot of pricing optimizations, which is great. He's correct. Monetization of your company. Uh, and your SaaS, as soon as you hit a certain uh, critical mass, is really important. But I find that a lot of SaaS companies rather run out of a lot of ideas once they get into tier pricing. And then they just start throwing spaghetti at the wall, thinking these are features that every, everybody that's a large company needs. And one of the things that I really hate, and I see it every single place that I look, is that you to have access to SSO, you need to pay for the enterprise plan. So I won't name companies in case they send their big legal teams against me, but I can uh, advise your readers to go to a website which is called sso.tax. That's the website. It's an open source project where they've listed all the companies that are going to make you pay five, six, seven times more just to have access to SSO, which is a very basic security need when you think about it. Uh, so I agree with your position and saying, okay, like if users are willing to pay more for the feature, then prioritize that. I'd be willing to pay more for SSO, but there's still an ethical question between, um, the, between ethical capitalism and then I suppose pure greed. And for me, SSO is a basic security need. I'm really annoyed. Please, if you're listening to this or watching this on YouTube, don't add SSO to your enterprise plan, please. <laughs> Okay, that that's what I'm doing uh, after after this episode. You know, I'll I'll go crawling the internet, <laughs> you know, looking looking for this. But that's actually a very good point, uh, and uh, it was one one of the questions that I put down for myself that I really really wanted to ask. Um, so, what about your pricing? And like you said, Patrick Campbell, and uh, he actually came to to SaaS Group um, a couple of months ago uh, to to talk about uh, pricing strategies. And um, yeah, again, uh, I'm with you. I kind of agree to disagree, right? Uh, changing pricing makes sense when it makes sense. You know, it's not just 
you know, let's test. Maybe people are going to pay more. Um, so uh, what about your pricing strategy? How did you determine it? Because as far as I understand, you were also kind of under the radar for, um, you know, for a couple of years, right? So how did you price your product? Yeah, so we we started in the in the school of Patrick Campbell and the Bible of Prophet Prophet Well. So of course we we done the Van Westen dot test of asking you know our initial ten twenty users how much would you be willing to pay? How much is it too expensive? But you would still consider it, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I'm sure if you're listening to this podcast, you already know what I'm talking about. We the problem with the, those questions for us is we weren't we didn't have enough sample size. Or at least retroactively looking back at it, I'm not sure that we had enough sample size. I think that type of test is probably better adapted to companies that let's say have a thousand beta tester users rather than us who were posing those questions to twenty. Um, so that's how we got our initial um, pricing was that we we done the, that that pricing sensitivity test. And on the bottom, we we built a, a chart where on the y-axis, we had three different metrics that we tested. And then on the x-axis, we had the number of employees in that company, I think, or something like that. I forget. Essentially, the, the, the end result was that the higher the person was willing to pay was more correlated with the amount of employees, employees in the company rather than the amount of subscriptions in their company or the spend in their company on software subscriptions. So that's how we found our price, pricing metric uh, and our initial pricing plan. We decided not to change our pricing yet. Um, the, we're a business. We probably will change and, you know, we, we do pricing tests every so often. But our pricing tests tend not to be about, you know, building a new pricing plan out or doubling pricing. They tend to be more around uh, localizing pricing on the pricing page, maybe giving coupon codes to to resolve pricing uh, parity, uh, parity, I think it's called, forget me. <laughs> I'm not, um, but this would be more of the type of pricing test we do. That's how we got to the pricing plan we're at right now. Um, and we, we probably launched another questionnaire uh, and and try and do some Van Westendorp ties, uh, Van Westendorp uh, experiments. I'm kind I'm I'm kind of hesitant then. And I wonder what your opinion is. But I kind of get the feeling that sending a, a questionnaire out to people, saying how much are you willing to pay for this product, especially now that the Van Westendorp test is so popular and so well known, kind yeah. of seems like. A, a, if I'm responding, I know that I'm going to respond with the lowest prices so that their data gets messed up and they give me the lowest price. Like it's, it's it seems like a losing battle to pose that type of question to your customers. Looking for new ways to find customers for your SaaS business? Consider adding an affiliate or customer referral program. Rewardful is the easiest affiliate tracking platform to set up, manage and scale for SaaS companies. Log your customer acquisition cost and only pay based on results. Integrate Rewardful with your Stripe or Paddle account and set up your affiliate campaigns in minutes. Rewardful automatically tracks referrals, calculates commissions, handles upgrades and downgrades all seamlessly in the background, whether you sell one-off purchases or recurring subscriptions. Companies like Podia, Copy.ai, Barometrics, Synthesia, and many, many more are already using Rewardful to add that sweet, sweet MRR to their businesses. Sign up now at Rewardful.com for a free 14-day trial and turn your biggest fans into your best marketers. 
True. No, I mean, this is such a sensitive thing, I think. Like, if if you were just starting, I think it's a good stuff, like, just to... And again, maybe not... Uh, maybe you're not going to end up using it, right? But just to, to get an idea of what people think about your product. But I think the best test is just to... Uh, to offer a freemium for, for a couple of days and then, you know, buy it. it it's, yeah. like, of course, it depends on the product, right? And uh, with um, License One, it's probably, it has a longer adoption um, period and, you know, it, it just takes longer to see the benefits, right? But if, say, uh, I don't know, just... Taplio, for example, comes to mind, right? One again, one of the founders that came to the podcast, um, they put a price on it pretty much right away. And that's your best test, you know? And if you're starting, yeah, maybe find out what, what people think about it. But I guess when you're growing, it's, you can just test and see how people respond. But again, um, I'm not sure I'm that familiar with what you're doing, like how yeah. you're working, but that comes back again to, to the fact that you were kind of hiding somewhere yeah. <laughs> since launch. So why did you take on this strategy? How did it play for you? And why are you changing it now? Um, so I kind of, I'm inspired a lot by by, by SaaS companies and SaaS founders that do things a little bit differently. Um, I could cite in France uh, Guillaume from Lemlist, but I could also yep. cite the, the success cases of Notion, of Rippling, of um, Figma. Who Fig Notion, for example, you can search on YouTube and see their demo from 2013. Uh, it it is great for 2013, but I think a lot of people really forget that like notion's been going for 10 years like we've had this very recent explosion of everybody and their mother using notion and talking about it yep. and them having billboards everywhere but there was a good four five six years where that team was sitting down headphones in concentrating on building great product and not really caring so much about getting their brand out there uh, that type of model really inspires me a lot because I'm sort of this, um, I, I love using good products and I, I would love to be in the position where like the founders of Notion and Figma, et cetera, like people love using our products and we get such a big advancement on the on our vision on, an, on a certain sector that, that we, we enjoy that position. So that's why we've done that. We, we thought that the, we were with our network and with our current way of acquiring, you know, new users, we, we felt that we could get enough qualitative feedback and quantitative feedback by sort of going under the radar for, for a while. We didn't want to give all of our secrets away because we have some sort of different approaches um, towards the way we, we, we look at things and the way that we think the problem exists for people managing their software subscriptions. Um, for example, you will never hear me say managing SaaS subscriptions, or you shouldn't. If, if you do, it's a mistake. And the reason we make that distinction is because from the people that we're speaking to, the only people that call them SaaS subscriptions are you and I. They're people in the SaaS industry. The majority of people that have the problem, though, they didn't even click that the software has moved onto the browser. They open up their right. internet and then they just go onto a software. 
And this is just, that's only semantically a difference. But when you start thinking like that of what is the real problem? What are our persona? How do we respond to that? How do we make sure that this is a, a problem that is resolved not only by Anna in the marketing team, but Deborah in the HR team and Michael in the finance team and all of this, then you start to think of building a cohesive product. Uh, and it's a vision that really needs to be done. In my opinion, two, three years secret, let's say under the radar, uh, and then once you've got your your big product that people are already happy with, uh, then you can start launching it into the world. But I don't think everybody had the facility to do what we done uh, or we are doing. Uh, it wasn't an easy ride anyway. <laughs> In either case, there was salaries cut uh, at some point and then salaries re-put on at some point. I think I lived on six months for on like 200 euros a month. Uh, it wasn't an easy t point to get to here. Oh, wow. Um, but I think it's 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 a necessary step to grow to grow SaaS in, in 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 this day and age. I think also continuing that thought. I think we sort of entered, we've exited the stage. There's a great um, article. I forget the the author's name, but I know it is the chief product officer of uh, Webflow. It's called "Don't Serve Burnt Pizza," which is kind of a metaphor for our BMP uh, MVP. Essentially, the theory is if you make your MVP like a burnt pizza, you're not going to learn if people like pizza or not. You're just going to learn that they don't like pizza that's burnt. You need to make a really good product before you can really say that you tested that product. And so there's been this period, let's say 10 years ago, you could make a really scrappy MVP and people would buy it. And then you could go to investors and raise millions and build a great product. Now I think our standards are pretty high for software. Consumers buy uh, B2B consumers, uh, B2B Customers, especially towards the lower end, buy with a similar logic to consumers. And I think they've got standards that are are, are a bit higher, even much higher than, than 10 years ago. So I think also before launching that first product and getting your name out there, you better be sure that at least it's, it's good enough to stand, you know, the initial critique that's going to come in from it. Right. Okay. Hundred percent agree. I actually have a funny uh, comment about um, SaaS. I, I have a friend, and she works in SaaS. And um, I went uh, once I started working for SaaS Group. Uh, she came to me and she was like, "Okay, what's SaaS?" <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. and I was yeah. like, "Well, yeah." No, but this is it, and and I think every, all of our cost, all of our competitors, they just didn't realize this, and they still don't. And I I understand why, because that's what gets investors, but they, they're not thinking of their users first. When you think of your users first, you stop using SaaS. <laughs> Simple. <laughs> yeah. All right. Okay. Uh, but yeah, 100% agree with you. Uh, now these stakes are way too high. Right. It, it's, it's still like very... Um, inspiring to to read a post on LinkedIn go out if you're not ashamed of your MVP then you know you're you're launching too too late and stuff like that and yeah it's it's nice to think about it you know you're this indie hacker just trying to mm. to break into the industry but I think now it's less and less there are less and less stories of success of these kinds of products it's mostly, you know, you hear, especially, you know, if you want to hear really a success story, then it mm. was a good, uh, a good product to start with. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, 
But to, to just to add on, I would certainly say you can't build a product without having users in front of it. At least for us, we did have a, a sort of loyal five, ten customers that were using our like horrible version product, let's say. So I would just say to anybody listening, don't get the idea you can build a product just based on what you want. You definitely need your small little uh, closed group of private alpha testers. Uh, <laughs> so just to add True. that as an add-on. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, but yeah, okay, it's great that you mentioned it. And uh, that's also a great problem. You know, um, it's great to hear, you know, have customers before uh, before you have a product. Yeah, it's easily said than done. So how did you find your first customers apart from, you know, serving the company that you've been working with? Where did you get them? Uh, tenacity, determination, and uh, impoliteness. Uh, it was a case <laughs> of <laughs> it was a case of uh, when I was asking people to do uh, the the initial the initial Excel sort of manual reports. After I'd done them, I said like, "Hey, look, I built a software. It's not in the best of stages, but could you test it out and see if also that works for you?" Um, and then for those other people that I was looking for, I was asking everybody, handing business cards up, everybody, everybody that I thought could, you know, have a contact in there to say like, hey, we're looking for testers. Uh, could you just test out the software? I know you're not the decision maker in the company. I don't care if you buy it, just test it, go on, see if my onboarding works correctly. See if the button makes sense to you, whatever. We had, like my mother tested the software, uh, which, you know, it, it, it seems stupid in a way because she, she's not a SaaS buyer. She doesn't work in the industry. If my software isn't simple enough to be understood by my mother, then we're making big mistakes along the way. So, to Good get point. to get those um to get to those stages of um at least those first testers and those first uh, it was just a case of asking asking everybody, outreaching to people. Like I found uh, one of our most loyal users is a finance director in, in a French startup. I just contacted them saying like, hey, I don't know what I'm doing. I think I can solve your problem. Uh, maybe not. I won't make you pay for it, uh, at least not for the first few months. What do you think? Take 15 minutes, please. Something like not begging in a way, but it's just a case of like, test my product. I feel like if you, I don't know if I could have, or if licensed one would even have been in that stage if I didn't at least have the mentality to start doing that. So that was the first part. And then once we have had got to that like six, seven month stage of, you know, having those initial test users, we started running a playbook of um, on LinkedIn and on Facebook groups for startups. We started running a playbook where every new feature became launched as, let's say, a beta feature. So I give you an idea. We launched a feature. Uh, it's a long time ago now that detects how often employees log into software, or at least the last time they're logged into one of their software subscriptions, because obviously that's one of the leading causes of wasted money. Somebody you pay monthly, but they don't right. log in. Instead of saying license one, just launched this new feature, come and test it out. We posted saying on my LinkedIn and on these Facebook groups, Hey, just launched a new product. That's going to detect all of the times that your employees have logged in. We're looking for new beta users. Uh, leave a comment below and just that mental positioning changing from we've got a new feature to we're building a new product made us touch multiple different personas across all of these different groups uh, all these French startups or in on my LinkedIn uh, and then we could also test as well 
in a limited way the popularity of each of those feature sets because you know if people signed up if more people signed up for the um the the activity tracking feature versus let's say the software um spend tracking feature then of course we know which more which one we should have put more energy into but again the problem there was right. that we kind of became <laughs> a a feature factory and it became some sort of hedonic treadmill where we were like, how do we get a new post? How do we get more traction? Let's go make more features. Uh, so double-edged sword, you need to be really careful of that if you're going to copy that playbook. Right. You, you kind of adopted the product hunt setting and made your your LinkedIn into your product hunt. Yeah. That's uh, that's interesting. We still have So why product not product hunt? hunt? <laughs> Yeah, we still haven't. We still haven't. Um, the the reason the reason we didn't launch on Product Hunt is because um, for uh, I'm I'm sorry I'm going to have to pitch license one a tiny bit. Um, the way we detect sure. software is multiple different ways. So we either detect it through bank accounts, and so we can detect bank accounts in the whole of every European country. We can detect from bank accounts in the USA and in Canada. But we can't do can detect bank accounts in India because they don't have enough banking, open banking regulation to allow us to do that. So we would need to then detect software payments from accounting software. But we don't have enough accounting software integrations yet to make it worthwhile to go onto Product Hunt. Um, so it's kind of useless to launch onto Product Hunt and say like, oh, we only work for European and US users. I mean, there's a lot of companies that do that. Um, but we are kind of unfortunately or fortunately localized in the sense that we can only really target the EU and US customers or, or North American customers at the moment. Um, but we're probably going to go on product hunt sometime in the next 12 months. We think we'll be adding a few more accounting software integrations that should be able to to handle the, the, the other international audiences. So th that's probably in the pipeline. It's just not yet. And it took a lot of work to get to that stage. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, I'll make sure to upvote you guys. Uh, so <laughs> what changed in your customer acquisition strategy from, you know, going to, into uh, personal emails to doing what? Because, you know, uh, like I said, I do my research before I start every podcast and I haven't found much about you. I mean, there is the website, there is yeah. one podcast that you did, yeah. but that's pretty much it. Yeah. So, I mean, again, what changed in our acquisition strategy is that we're just starting it up. Uh, before our acquisition strategy was focused on acquiring new feedback rather than acquiring new customers. There's there's a philosophical change between those two. Um, and although there's a lot of people that will say, uh, make your first feedback customers pay, I agree with that, sure, but that wasn't our focus. We're in a growth stage. We want as much feedback as we can so that when we start acquiring customers, they're going to convert in an exceptionally high high rate. So what's changed now is pretty much we we have budget to put into acquisition channels. We've got a fifth team member coming in June uh, that is going to be full-time on SEO and, and all of that good stuff that is going to be the classic playbook for 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 b2b SaaS companies i don't want to go in too much detail into the the strategy there but seo is not going to be massive for us anyway um and that's it the the thing that's changed is that now we're actually going to start looking to acquiring customers rather than acquiring feedback from potential customers which is philosophically again it's just a different thing 
Uh, and that means that also my role has changed. Um, whereas before I was more in a, let's say, strategic um, role, making sure, first of all, the company had enough money to survive and we didn't die next week. Um, and also being the sort of product management manager, designer role, uh, that has now been taken over by my other co-founder. And then now I'm going more into the marketing and sales side as well. Uh, so each product, each project is, in my opinion, sort of has this sort of different stages. The company license one needed me to be the product manager, the sort of sales acquisition guy, even though we weren't selling so much and the customer support, whatever. Now that's being a bit more delegated to my other co-founders. I'm on acquisition for uh, for for clients, and so is this uh, our fifth team member that's joining us in June. Okay, all right. So, uh, buckle up. An impolite question <laughs> is coming. Uh, oh. How are you guys able to afford it? Like, uh, do you have some massive clients that are paying you? Um, big money for what you're doing or are you uh are you funded because again i couldn't find any information about that are you bootstrapped are you a millionaire <laughs> <laughs> this all comes like, from drug money drug money <laughs> okay no, no, there no, you um, go i knew it <laughs> the, the company started with uh with some love money from uh from two ex-colleagues and then obviously then uh, me and my co-founders took up a small loan something like 50k 60k but whatever uh, and then we also got some public funding which helped us maintain for a certain while uh license one and that helped us get things off the racks and at least get us up to you know year one and a half year two and then that's it we that's that's our financing up to now Okay, interesting. All right, so uh, you can say you were bootstrapped, right? Kind of. I mean, this is well, like for me, bootstrapped is such like a such an ambiguous term nowadays. Because as as far as I'm concerned, most companies, if not all SaaS companies, were bootstrapped to a certain extent. It just depends where you put the cursor on bootstrapped. So, like, of course, sure, you, yeah. everybody's bootstrapped until they get their first investment round. Uh, Lemlist, who created this whole bootstrap phase, I don't know if it went worldwide, but at least in, in France, a lot of people rallied behind this bootstrap um, sort of messaging, uh, just accepted fundraising. I think it was at the end of last year or something like that for 20 million. It was only on secondary. I don't think there was a lot of primary investment. Um, I think every company should be just thinking about capital efficiency point i don't i don't care if we're bootstrapped i don't care if we raise money from investors the only thing i care about is making sure that smes stop wasting money on sh on software subscriptions whatever we need to do to get to that point i will do it so i bootstrapped or not who cares right well that's true that's that's true i mean uh as far as you run a good healthy company that helps others yeah uh, nobody cares. But okay, so what was the so far, the biggest learning point for you? Like, what was the aha moment that you know just opened up your eyes and maybe made you pivot? Or um, I don't know, a turning point? The, there's been a few. How much time have you got? <laughs> <laughs> um... There's been, there was one, um, that at least I, I'm only speaking personally here, but it wasn't for the whole company. Um, 
but there's this sort of hypothesis that uh, the sort of I've pushed on the rest of the company, admittedly, since the beginning, uh, is that the SMEs have a problem uh, and it's not being solved by any of our competitors. And also our competitors don't give two shits about them. Sorry for the language, but they don't care about SMEs. Big companies bring too much money to them in terms of revenue. And when they accept external investors, they only care about ARPA. So why go down down uh, hill when you're already going up? And it was something that really, I like. As I think every SaaS founder puts themselves under a lot of questions and they start to think, I, not imposter syndrome, um, but you would start to think, okay, like, is this the right direction? And then is this really the right theory? Should we not just be copying our, our competitors because they seem to be making a success of it? And it was there, was, there was a moment, something like seven, eight months ago, where we started to speak to already a couple of failed founders who used to be competitors of ours, but ended up failing along the way. Uh, when we started to speak to a few investors for who VC investors who were following uh, the sector and then speaking around and getting a bit more, uh, what was it? Uh, a bit more external feedback on finally that vision that we kind of tried to keep secret for a long time. I started to realize that sometimes I have the right idea. <laughs> and it's it's a weird thing to say because I'm always coming along with sort of like these, having an idea, and it's not just me, my co-founders are the same. We say, okay, like this is what we think is correct. But then it's sort of like the scientific approach of trying to prove ourselves wrong. It's like, no, it can't be correct. What about this? What about that? What about the right. other thing? And mentally just a something gut shifted. Yeah, it's a gut feeling or you're making decisions with limited information. And there was something about six, seven months ago that just clicked after getting all of this external validation from customers, from investors, from, you know, failed competitors, unfortunately, who were really nice guys as well, uh, that actually something clicked in my mind and said, like, maybe not every idea that I or the rest of the company has uh, should be put in question. Maybe just what we should be doing is going full steam ahead on those ideas until we hit the brick wall, rather than trying to make the brick wall come to us uh, before we even hit it. I don't know how to put a metaphor that sounds nice on it, but that, that was at least one of the big learning curves. Uh, I think the the other one, but I th it's, it's such a stupid one because like everybody speaks <laughs> about it. It's like, it's delegate, it's delegate. It's speak it. to your... So your co-founders want to do stuff as well. Uh, and I was taking a lot of stuff on my own shoulders for the first year, even further. Um, and delegation sounds like something that would happen, I suppose, in this hierarchical stru structure from a manager to the rest of their team. For me, it was a case of like, I was doing way too many things. And it wasn't until my co-founders like sort of took me aside and said like, hey, like, listen, I, it's cool that you're doing all those things. Like, we also kind of want to do those some of those things too. I was like, ah, why didn't you ask before? It's like, well, because you were kind of like really head down. And the reason I say it's stupid is because it's like one podcast and three or four is going to say that's what you should be doing. But something just didn't click in my head to say, or our head really to say at the very beginning, like, okay, what do we want to do now? What do we want our jobs to look like in six months, one year's time? And how are we going to reevaluate that between us uh, along the way? So and, and and I think also one doing that, like it's insane that both those co-founders that have started assuming jobs that I used to do are doing them ten times better than what I ever done, which is you know even better and also it makes me look hella stupid. But 
whatever. That's the, <laughs> those, are, those are two two of the learning curves, I suppose. I, I could I could try and give you at least. Well, but that's cool. I think it's so important, actually. And like you said, it's it's just so it kind of um, presumed that it's a natural way to just talk and uh, um, just assume that p- the people don't uh, the people want to do what they are doing because they're developers, they want to program or because they're marketers, they want to market. And it's just um, like we were talking with, um, uh, I think that was Rent Fishkin. Yeah. And uh, we were talking about products. And uh, what he said is like um, the biggest problem that they're um, facing right now is that um their users don't convert and the reason behind it and that's what they're realizing is that uh they simply don't know no one's showing them how something works because they assumed that it's just so easy (laughs) and you should never assume you know that people know what they're doing or they they do what they want you should always talk with the people that you work with uh i would never be doing a podcast is if i would uh if i was listening to people telling me what to do right i just came to them and said hey that would be nice to do a podcast and you know here we are Uh, but yeah absolutely that's beautiful and thank you for reminding uh about it uh, so just a couple more questions and first one kind of in the same uh, area what was the biggest win and the biggest failure so far for a company or maybe for you as the founder uh biggest win for the company and founder biggest fail for the company and founder uh forgive me you might have to edit this out but i want to think because i don't want to give the biggest win to something and then later think about something after sure Um, (laughs) take your time i think the biggest win for the company was uh, probably there was um the we 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 done a launch on AppSumo, which is a software marketplace if your users don't know Uh, essentially you list your software on there uh, people come and they will buy lifetime access to your software for a very low price. Um, and the idea is, is you use that to then get as much feedback from them as possible. But also, it's a very international audience. So we were bringing on users from the US, uh, from India, from Cambodia, from Brazil, from every country in the world. I think we've now got users in over 38 countries in the world right now. Um that moment itself wasn't the big success, in my opinion. It was certainly a success, but there was really this this moment of um, the champagne bottle popping. It wasn't re- metaphorically, in the sense that once that was happening, there was this case of like the whole team coming together. Uh, we had one of my co-founders that was a new dad, like his child was born literally a month before that launch. So he still wasn't having good sleep. Uh, even today, it's still difficult. <laughs> I'm not revealing too much personal information, but uh, I think the big win. The child the company, is 18 least... already, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, th- this moment of like where the whole four of us came through and we were like, okay, now we're going to do night shifts because we were getting support requests left, right and center. Uh, maintaining so that the software was staying up because once you get a mass of users coming on and testing and synchronizing software and then everything was going wrong but everything was going right at the same time uh, at least for me when i look back that was one of those big successes 
Um, but I don't know if it's the biggest success. We've had another few. We've we launched an advent calendar for SaaS, for for French SaaS companies. Uh, we ended doing a, ended up doing a co partnership with um, a, a guy called Jens Polonsky uh, in Cologne uh, last year, where like behind every door there's a new deal on a SaaS subscription, uh, and we ended up getting a ton of visitors. Cool. Like the first year we had something like ten fifteen thousand visitors, and we spent zero on acquisition zero on marketing it was just co-marketing action for fun uh, so at least for the company those would probably be the two i suppose i guess the other ones is making remy my our third co-founder he was a late co-founder so i suppose the other big one is that he ended up being crazy enough to join us so that would be a big one uh, and for the low times in the company uh would probably be uh having to cut salary like having to cut salary also is we can't cut salary for employees uh, full-time employees but cutting salary between co-founders uh, it's always a difficult moment in time but it's always difficult especially when uh, like i mentioned uh, you've got co-founders that have got other sort of responsibilities at home um, and it's also when you realize how well you've chosen your co-founders and how well your co-founders have chosen their family when you realize that cutting salary Although it's you know a horrible experience to go through, you understand that their wife or their husband's one hundred percent behind them. That you understand that your co-founder's not blaming you because uh, you're already blaming yourself enough, and then you sort of like you're you're all in that deep end together. But I certainly remember that being you know the darkest days of license one, where we're like, okay, sorry guys, like we, if we pay ourselves more money, uh, license one doesn't exist. We're going to have to find ways to pay your rent and whatever, and I'm going to have to find ways to pay my rent in another way. Those were, those were the darkest days uh, of the company, darkest days for me too. Um, and yeah, that's probably how I'd summarize it all up. <laughs> okay, all right, and uh, you know, it's uh, uh, it tells a lot about you as a founder and and your team uh, about when you said, you know, we only cut our salaries, not our employees, which is, you know, an absolutely amazing approach and uh, um, doesn't happen as often as uh, one would want to. But yeah. um, I mean, the good thing is we were in France. That's another story. So, I mean, if we, if we wanted to cut the salaries, what it would be is we'd end up firing employees uh, and we only have one at the moment. And uh, I think everybody can empathize with the idea that, you know, when you're, when you're such a small team, it's sort of a case of like if you if you lose that guy, it's like losing a brother. Uh, now we're such a small team; we take the sacrifice. He take he keeps his salary. Uh, that's that's not us being nice. That's just us being normal. <laughs> cool. That's, that's normal. Okay. Amen. Uh, all right, and uh, just one more question, and uh, this is something about the trends, you know, in in SaaS industry or just um, uh, in in the whole software uh, world. So. Everyone's crazy about AI, especially ChatGPT. What do you think about it? Are you leveraging it for the company somehow? And are you planning to introduce um, some kind of AI anything in License One? <laughs> um, we're not planning on putting AI in at the moment, um, but we do use AI, or at least I use a uh, ChatGPT. Um, when I'm writing, like I, I'm sort of this in terms of writing, I'm this discombobulated typewriter. I have sort of like a hundred different ideas, but which is really or, or different clauses, but which is difficult for me is to make them go through with like a consistent paragraph so that it makes sense and it flows like like 
most people normally write. Uh, so ChatGPT helps me out a lot in there, and ChatGPT also helps me out a lot when I'm reviewing legal paperwork, especially when it's in French, because uh, what it will do is I can copy and paste the, French, the legal tech work in there, and then I will ask ChatGPT a question like, hey, how does this cover reverse vesting? Give me a summary in English, and then it will translate and give me a summary. Like, great tool, at least for the iteration right now. I use it every day or two. Um, where do I see it going? I mean, I don't even think I'm qualified enough to know. I think there's what, what's surprising to me is there's a lot of tools being built off of their AI um, and they're just working on one prompt. Uh, I I hesitate to say, but I think Copy AI use uh, open, uh, ChatGPT's model or OpenAI's model, sorry. But did I say OpenAI? No, I meant, what's it called? Copy AI. Copy AI, that's the one I meant. Yeah. You know exactly who I'm talking about. Um, there's, <laughs> there's, there's, I think email writers using their models or they're using Jasper. Like, There's a lot of writing tools that are based on these API access models. Um, I'm interested to see the end result for where that gets to because I don't know how that's... How like writing tools, I don't see how they're all going to merge together if functionally the quality of the writing is all going to be more or less the same. Um, but again, I think I'm just speaking nonsense. I don't know enough about AI. Um, if I were to hesitate, um, a yes, I would say the biggest change is going to be that forget all of the innovation that OpenAI and Google and all that are doing. I think probably the biggest innovations are going to be coming from companies like Hugging Face. And uh, we have a company in France called Ecomia, I-K-O-M-I-A, uh, who help developers deploy all of those open source AI algorithms. I think that's probably going to be the real thing that's going to help AI explode to the maximum is that nobody's going to be really dependent on OpenAI or any other company. Uh, they're going to find an easy, cheap, affordable way to successfully launch either on their own computers or on their own servers AI algorithms and apply them to all their side projects or all their real projects. I'd probably say that's where, where this sector is going to be going. Interesting. That's a new one. Okay. So that, that's why the podcast is here, you know, to, to see, cause you all brilliant people, founders come here, you know, to share your, uh, your opinions. And, uh, that's, you know, um, that's why it's so interesting because yeah, sure. No one really knows where, uh, chat GPT will take us. Right. But it's, interesting to you know to assume and see because again i never knew about the companies that you just mentioned right some again something for me to google today <laughs> <laughs> so thanks for saying thanks for sharing all right well jonathan it's been uh amazing talking with you i absolutely loved learning about license one still have to go and see and maybe try for myself what it does and uh if we uh at task group can also leverage it for ourselves but uh yeah thanks for thanks for telling this story thanks again for having me anna thank you so much all right and take care bye bye that was yet another awesome conversation on sas unbound we're always looking for new guests to share their experiences we mostly talk with bootstrapped sas founders and if you're one reach out to me directly at anna at sas.group or find me on LinkedIn. If you're not bootstrapped or even not SaaS, but have a great story to tell, we want to hear from you too. 
And obviously, SaaS Unbound wouldn't be possible without the SaaS Group, a founder-friendly private equity company that buys awesome businesses that people love to take them to even greater success. If you're thinking about selling your company or just exploring your options, feel free to visit saas.group, fill in the form, and expect a response in under 24 hours.